KPBS On Demand is brought to you by the San Diego County Toyota dealers. Committed to an elevated driving experience with vehicles like the totally redesigned 2021 Highlander with third row seating that fits up to eight passengers. To learn more, visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. From KPBS and So Say We All in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the show that features true stories from the lives of America's military told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. Today's episode takes its name after a quote by Lewis Carroll, all that is really worth doing is what we do for others. And we chose that because our two contributors today, Brian Turner and Mariah Smith of the U.S. Army, have stories and poems that echo that sentiment. Mariah, because her story is literally about jumping through hurdles just to be present for an important moment in the life of somebody who was important to her. And Brian, because his poetry and stories consistently carry an element of sitting watch with someone during their darkest hours. And we're going to start off with Brian Turner. I refer to Brian as the Poet Laureate of Veteran Writers, even though he has plenty of actual awards and accolades to his name. His collection, Hear Bullet, won the 2005 Beatrice Holly Award, and his following collection, Phantom Noise, was shortlisted for the 2010 T.S. Eliot Prize, and he's won the 2006 Penn Center USA Best in the West Literary Award in Poetry, among others. But before he became one of the best-known post-9-11 veteran writers, he was Sergeant Turner, serving in the Iraq War with the 3rd Striker Brigade Combat Team, 2nd Infantry, and with the 10th Mountain Division before that in Bosnia and Herzegovina. He's currently serving as the MFA program chair at Sierra Nevada College, where many of the writers on this show studied under him. And it's that perspective, especially as a teacher for returning veterans, that made me really eager to talk to him. So let's just get to it then. Here's Brian Turner. Hi, my name is Brian Turner, and I'm about to read a fragment from my memoir, My Life as a Foreign Country. The soldiers enter the house. Soldiers determined and bored and searing with adrenaline into the house's shouting and curses and muzzle flash, debt cord and 5.56 millimeter ball ammunition. The soldiers enter the house with pixelated camouflage, flex cuffs, chem lights, door markings, and duct tape. The soldiers enter the house with ghillie suits and Remington sniper rifles, phoenix beacons and night vision goggles, lasers invisible to the naked eye, rotor blades, hellfire missiles, bandoliers strapped across their chests. The soldiers enter the house one fire team after another, and they fight brutal, dirty, nasty, the only way to fight. The soldiers enter the house with the flag of their nation sewn under the sleeves of their uniforms. They enter the house of Toledo and Baton Rouge imprinted on the rubber soles of their desert combat boots. They enter the house and shout, Honey, I'm home, and here's Johnny. The soldiers enter the house with conversations of Monday Night Football and the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. The soldiers enter the house with obscenities on their tongues. The soldiers enter the house with paperbacks in their cargo pockets. Starship troopers and Black Hawk Down, we were soldiers once and young. The soldiers enter the house straight out of Compton or with M&M saying, look, if you had one shot or one opportunity. They enter the house with their left foot. They enter the house the way one enters cemeteries or unclean places. The soldiers enter the house with their insurance policies filled out, signed, beneficiaries named, last will and testament sealed in manila envelopes half a world away. The soldiers enter the house having just ordered a new set of chrome mufflers on eBay for the Mustang stored under blankets in a garage north of San Francisco. 
The soldiers entered the house with only nine credits earned toward an associate's degree in history from the University of Maryland. They kick in the door and enter the house with a memory of backyard barbecues on their minds. They kick in the door while cradling their little sisters in their arms. They kick in the door and pull in toboggans and canoes from the hillsides and lakes of Minnesota. They kick in the door and bring in the horses from the barn, hitching them to the kitchen table inside. The soldiers enter the house with Mrs. Ingram from second grade at Vinland Elementary School and with Mrs. Garupa from AP English at Madera High. The soldiers kick in the door and enter the house with their arms filled with all the homework they ever did. They enter the house and sit down to consider the quadratic equation, the Socratic method. The soldiers enter the house to sit cross-legged on the floor as the family inside watches on, watches how the soldiers interrogate them, saying, how do I say the word for friend in Arabic? How do I say the word love? How do I tell you that Private Miller is dead, that Private Miller has holes in the top of his head? And what is the word for ghosts in Arabic? And how many live here? And are the ghosts Bath Party supporters? Are the ghosts in favor of the coalition forces? Are the ghosts here with us now? Can you tell us where the ghosts are hiding? And where the ghosts keep their weapons cached? And where they sleep at night? But what can you tell us about Alibaba? Is there an Alibaba in the neighborhood? The soldiers enter the house and take off their dusty combat boots and pull out an anthology of poetry from an assault pack, Iraqi Poetry Today, and commence reading poems aloud. The soldiers say, this is war then, all is well. They say, the missiles bomb the cities and the airplanes bid the clouds farewell. The soldiers remove their flak vests and turn off their radios. The soldiers smile and stretch their arms, one of them yawning, another asking for a second cup of chai. Soldiers give chocolates to the frightened little children in the shadows of the house. The soldiers give chocolates to the frightened little children and teach them how to flip off the world. The soldiers recite poetry as trays of chai and tea and cigarettes are brought into the room. The soldiers, there in the candlelight of the front room, with Iraqi men of military age zip-tied with flex cuffs, kneeling, sandbags over their heads, read verses from Iraqi poetry today. The soldiers switch off their night vision goggles and set their padded helmets on the floor while the frightened little children pretend to eat the chocolates they've been given, their mothers shushing them when they begin to cry. And the soldiers, men from Kansas and California, Tacoma and College Station, these soldiers remove the black gloves from their hands to show the frightened little children how they mean them no harm, how American the soldiers are, how they might bring in a pitcher of water for the bound and blinded men to drink from soon, perhaps if there's time and how they read poetry for them, their own poetry in English, saying, between time and time, between blood and blood, all is well. All is well, the soldiers say. The soldiers kick in the doors and enter the house and zip-tie the men in military age and shush the women and the frightened little children and drink the spoon sugar stirred into the hot chai and remove their stinking boots and take off their flak vests and stack their weapons and turn off their night vision goggles and say to the frightened little children, softly, with their palms held out in the most tender of gestures they can offer, their eyes as brown as the hills that lead to the mountains or as blue as the rivers that lead to the sea, saying, All is well, little ones. All is well. I almost joined the Marines twice when I was 19 years old. 18, 19, around there. Uh, both times I went down to the recruiter, took the tests, and talked to them, and both times they said I'd maxed out the test. Both times I didn't believe them. Um, I thought maybe, you know, my verbal acuity may have been a good day, if, um, maybe, you know, uh, but my mechanical aptitude, not, not a chance and, you know, not possible. <laughs> uh, 
So, so I thought they were pulling my leg to pull me in. And, and then I also thought, well, if the, if the reverse is true and I'm the smart guy in the room with mechanical things, like when the 50 cal goes down and it's like, Turner, fix the 50 cal, you know, wow, yeah. I don't want to be in that spot, you know. <laughs> um, so I, I, I grew my hair out pretty long halfway down my back. I played bass guitar in a band called uh, Los Muertos Muchachos or the, the Dead Guys. And I was in Fresno, California. Um, I'm from the Central Valley. And I, I, you know, I finished, I thought, okay, I'm going to follow this band thing. I'm going to finish college and, and maybe we'll tour Japan, things like that. I started studying poetry classes and thinking that that might help me with lyrics for the band, uh, which did help. But uh, the band never really took off in terms of like CDs and that kind of thing, although I still enjoy playing with the guys. When I was about 30, almost 31, I remember thinking that the cutoff was 32 for joining. And I remember thinking in my head, I'm going to miss it, you know, like I'm not, I'm going to miss the timing so I wouldn't be allowed to join. And I wish I could go back to that guy, that other version of me, Brian Turner, and ask him, like, what exactly? You know, because I don't think it was fully formed in my mind. And in fact, that's what, you know, I wrote a poetry collection here, Bullet, when I was in Iraq as an infantry sergeant. I wrote Phantom Noise, another collection, five years after I came home. One is written, you know, the soldier in the war, and the other is uh, the war coming home with me. Um, but I didn't, neither of those really got into your question, which is something that's been asked me for, you know, last 10 years, mostly at poetry readings. So why did you join the army? And uh, that's what, that was the impetus that led me into the memoir that I wrote. Although the memoir doesn't answer the question, really. It skirts around it just as I'm doing now. But I think there is an inheritance in my family, and I know this is true with a lot of families, uh, throughout our throughout our country, that there's a. When I was asked that question by reporters, I would say, "Oh, I come from a long line of military, you know, military tradition in my family," which seemed to answer the question. But if you think about it, it doesn't really say anything at all. Like, what does that really mean? You know, right? How did it get me to sign up and carry a weapon, put a weapon in my hand, and and uh, actually on the tarmac, you know, climb up into the plane that would take me to to a combat zone? Mm-hmm. But I do think it has something to do with. Um, manhood and masculinity uh in in my case um you know there are men and women both that serve in uniform i can just speak from my own my own personal experience i think it has something to do about a rite of passage about um the unknown it seems like in our culture about once every generation in a large-scale way the the tribe sends out its warrior class out into the some usually somewhere far away an unknown place for most of us they go through some type of test of fire and they come back changed or, or, or augmented or altered and, and then they don't talk about it. And that, that's true for the most part of my own family. And um, I, as a boy, I looked up to my uncles, my, my father, my grandfather, and, uh, and heard the stories of those before them. And there was always sort of this peripheral discussion of violence and war and especially, especially military service in general. So Violence and combat were never talked about. What was talked about were the, the, the edges of things, like, um, you know, sort of National Geographic version of military service. Like, I was, you know, the, about how big the ocean was and what this island was like and what it was like flying over this particular landscape, et cetera, never being down inside that moment. I, I think I, had, I learned early on, but I wasn't aware of this, even up until when I was 30, when I was about to join, when I said, oh, I'm going to miss it. I think what I was learning was that uh, in order to become like the 
the men I most revered in my family, I would have to do something like them. Come, go to some foreign place and come back changed, um, never to return to myself. A.B. Negative, The Surgeon's Poem. Thalia Fields lies under a gray ceiling of clouds, just under the turbulence, with anesthetics dripping from an IV into her arm. And the flight surgeon says the shrapnel cauterizes it traveled through her here, breaking this rib as it entered, burning a hole through the left lung to finish in her back. And all of this she doesn't hear, except perhaps as music, that faraway music of people's voices when they speak gently and with care a comfort to her on a stretcher in a flying hospital en route to Lahnstuhl, just under the rain at midnight. And Thalia drifts in and out of consciousness as a nurse dabs her lips with a moist towel, her palm on Thalia's forehead, her vitals slipping some, as burned flesh gives way to the heat of blood, the tunnels within opening to fill her, just enough blood to cough up and drown in. Thalia sees shadows of people working to save her, but cannot feel their hands, cannot hear them any longer. And when she closes her eyes, the most beautiful colors rise in darkness. Tangerine washing into Russian blue, with a droning engine humming on into dragonfly's wings, island palms painting the sky in impossible hue with their thick brushes dripping green. A way of dealing with the fact that Thalia Fields is gone, long gone, about as far from Mississippi as she can get. 10,000 feet above Iraq with a blanket draped over her body and an exhausted surgeon in tears, his bloodied hands on her chest, his head sunk down, the nurse guiding him to a nearby seat and holding him as he cries, though no one hears it, because nothing can be heard where pilots fly in blackout, the plane like a shadow guiding the rain, here in the droning engines of midnight. Do you feel like that's part of your job as a writer to confront civilians with their complicity? Yeah, and me too. You know, I'm after this, I'll probably stop by, you know, and get a coffee shop and get a an iced coffee, get its sugar and cream. And if it's if it's too sugary, I'm probably gonna uh, be, not be happy with it and think, oh, I should have put it in myself. Or you know, like, what am I doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, sometimes the trivial seems to like permeate throughout the day, and and I know. That halfway across the globe, you know, there's massive trauma being inflicted. Whether it needs to happen, doesn't need to happen, there's just no conversation about it. I've been watching the news and and not hearing us, not us, not a sentence about the the bombing campaign that we're a part of right now, the massive air, you know, campaign that we have in Iraq against ISIS, for example, or IS. Um, you know, we're a country so accustomed to war so used to it by now that it's just like breathing we know you don't think about breathing you just do it right unless somehow you're challenged by being underwater or something but we haven't been pushed underwater we're we can we can sustain this and for me there's something very um there's a kind of psychic disconnect in the world when a country can and this is something i've said this is one of my themes that's been throughout for me is that I, I'm troubled by living in a country that can wage war, be a part of it for so long, and not even talk about it for the most part. And so I look around the people driving in their cars and, and 
here in Florida, sadly, every everybody seems to be texting and driving. They're very good at it. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and I'm just wondering, like, why there's so much conversation going on, but there's none. It seems to very little that's taking place. It has to do with things that should be addressed. You know, the, the part of the reason I say this is because if we were Iraqi, for example, um, from 1991, 1990 or so, but 1991 until now, it would seem as if um, there was some type of either war or occupation that was connected to America continuously. We call the years from 1991 to 2003 sanction years. And the word sanction itself is very sterile and stuff. But if would we call them sanction years if Iraqi jets were flying over Los Angeles or San Diego or, or Birmingham, Alabama, and every now and then, you know, targeting an installation, which we would call a building, and eliminating enemy targets, which we might call uncles or friends. We might know people by name in that building, you know, people we'd lost and people we loved. Um, it might feel more like a low-level conflict or a war or something. So what I'm saying is, like, we're in our 25th anniversary of war just in Iraq and with Iraq. So <laughs> that, when I say endurance, I mean, we have endurance. <laughs> um. Sebastian Younger gave this really interesting TED Talk, and he's got a and an, went along with an article he wrote about his theory on why coming back from war, even though he's an embedded journalist, of course, with, in Afghanistan, and struggled a lot uh, as a lot of his soldier counterparts did with coming home, and and he had this take on it that where for him it was specifically about the act of being separated from a tribe of heavily armed men who, where he knew exactly who was on his side and who wasn't, and all of a sudden, even though he was no longer in a war zone, he never felt more in danger than we come back to America and lost that that tribe. Um, we talk a lot about the reentry sickness and the difficulties with coming home, but because it's different for everybody, I wanted to ask you what, reflecting on it, was the specific qualities that made transitioning back to civilian life difficult for you? Initially, it was uh, just trying to slough away Sergeant Turner and become Brian. So I remember... Very, you know, right at the very beginning, I had to do things like I had to stop my eyes from or try to stop my eyes from sort of scanning the street the way I would do, you know, sort of rooftops down through the levels of the building, checking the corners of streets. And um, when I'm walking down the street, um, doing a slow sort of pirouette like spin um, to see, get my 360, see what's behind me. not looking under overpasses um, as I was driving through and watching the the top of the overpass in case someone popped up from there. And then once I go under an overpass and I'm exiting on the other side of the freeway, um, not looking back in my rearview mirror to see if there's someone up on the other side of the overpass on the top. Uh, you know, some basic things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of sloughing away the, the, the job of the soldier and the trained part of it. And um, I guess eventually trying to, f- yeah, find a way back into trying to figure out who this guy Brian is. And uh, I, I think I did a pretty good job. I went back um, with National Geographic. I went to Baghdad to do to write an essay about the city, uh, no longer in uniform, no longer a soldier. I, this is 2011, I think. And um, I, I was there f- for a while, December of 2011. And I remember walking down Mutanabi Street, and I, there was a guy with me who was a bodyguard. So he's got a pistol under his jacket, and um, I think he had a black belt in Taekwondo. 
But I remember thinking, I don't think that's really going to help, you know? <laughs> like, that might help, like, at a bar in Fresno, maybe, but I didn't think it was going to help, like, if people had guns and that kind of thing. And, and also, you know, he had a pistol, but, like, how invested is this guy in keeping me alive if, if uh, whatever it is hits the fan, you know? So, but as we're walking, you know, it had been a few years since I'd been in uniform, but um, I, I did that, that slow turn, you know, the circle turn as I was walking forward, that kind of pirouette forward, looking back around me to see, to make sure checking my six, you know. And um, as soon as I stopped that turn, I was I had completed it and I was walking forward again, you know, or, or looking forward again. I, um, I, the voice in my head was like, do not do that again. Do not do that again. You know, because it was a, I, I knew I already looked, I didn't look Kurdish. I was hoping to look Kurdish, but um, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, I, I think I can quickly revert back into that given the right situation. And I think um, that that's a good thing, but it's also maybe a dangerous thing. Even last night, um, my wife and I met a friend at a at a burger joint here in College Park in Orlando, and uh, we were sitting down, and there was a picnic table outside, and the, our friend sat on the table. The table was uh, parallel; it was right on the street, but it was parallel to the street. So if you sit on one side of the picnic bench, you're looking out towards the street. If you sit on the other, you have your back to the street and you can't see anything. And and um, initially I started to sit there, but just so uncomfortable. So I remember I always sit by my wife, but in this one instance, I sat across the table from her because uh, I just, it was too uncomfortable. So it's been 10 years, you know, and I, and I'm sure that'll happen for much of the rest of my life. And it's a small, it's small things like this, but many of them don't get talked. And I know this is common for many, you know. This poem is from my second book, Phantom Noise. It's called Insignia. It starts with a quote which says, One in three female soldiers will experience sexual assault while serving in the military. Insignia. She hides under a deuce in half this time, sleeping on a roll of foam draped in mosquito netting. Sand flies hover throughout the night. She sleeps under vehicle exhaust and heat, dreaming of mortars buried beside her, Three stripes painted on each cold tube, a rocker of yellow hung below. It's you she's dreaming of, Sergeant. She'll dream of you for years to come, if she makes it out of this country alive, which she probably will. You will be the fire and the hovering breath, not the sniper, not the bomber in the streets. You. So I'm here to ask for this one night's reprieve. Let her sleep tonight. Let her sleep. Pause a moment under the gibbous moon. Smoke. The gin your wife sent from New Jersey, colored mint green with food dye disguised in a bottle of mouthwash. Take a long swig of it. Take the edge out of your knuckles. Let it blur your vision into a tremor of lights. The explosions in the distance are not your own. In these long hours before dawn on the banks of the Tigris River, let her sleep. In her dream, your eyes are pools of rifle oil. You unsheathe the bayonet from its scabbard while she waits on a mattress of sand and foam there in the motor pool. She waits to kiss bullets into your mouth. When anyone's known for anything, that they also can feel like they're, they're trapped by it. Do you feel like, I mean, <laughs> you can no more not be a soldier or a veteran than, you know, I could be a unicorn, but do you ever feel like <laughs> I'm ready to be known as not the veteran writer anymore? You know, as soon as you said I could be a unicorn, 
I know people out there are going to like quickly, and they'll erase it very quickly, but they'll see you as a unicorn for a moment. Um, <laughs> it, may, maybe that was my so, intent all along. That, to plant that dream image. has come true. Brian Turner yeah. interviewed by a unicorn. <laughs> I don't want to erase the past. Um, all of the things that have happened in the past are part of the lens that I see the world through now. Um, we all do it like that, you know? So as I, if I write something new, I know it's going to be in conversation, at least in some, even in ways that I have no idea are taking place. Uh, in some way, the past will be involved with the present and with the future. Um, if I'm if I'm lucky enough to have a future, uh, I I do sometimes feel like the work. Uh, you know, I'm often invited to places and and I'll be introduced as soldier poet, right, or soldier writer. You know, and I'm no longer a soldier, so I'm I'm a civilian. You know, I'm a veteran, and. Uh, so a soldier, a poet, like I'm fighting for poetry. You know, I, I do. Don't get me wrong, but it's like it just seems like I, I, I'm I'm hoping that oh, if I'm fortunate enough um, to be able to um, to write more, that that might change and shift. The one thing I'd like to say, there's so many things, but one just in case it's useful, is that um, with the current wars, you know, I'm a I'm a book lover, so I'm a book junkie. And I love to read. And with, there's this wave of war literature that's come to America. And it's a kind of a, um, you know, that's it's a bright time for writing in America. It's a busy time for writing in America. There are a lot of new books being put on the shelves. But what I'm waiting for is that combat narrative, that that collection of poems or that, that novel or that amazing memoir or some of all of these. But that, that book written by a, a female veteran or service member that is put up on that rare high shelf among the Michael Hares, the Sebastian Jungers, the Dexter Filkins, the, um, you know, the Carolyn Forchés, the, uh, um, the Tim O'Briens, put on that shelf. And um, I know it's coming. I know a lot of them are in like writing programs right now. I know some of them are scribbling away on chapter 17 right now in some town that I've never been to, but, um, I'm waiting, and I'm looking forward to, to reading that work and learning from them. Um, and it's time. It's over. It's way overdue. So I'm looking forward to it. Maybe you've already taught her. <laughs> yeah, I've been very fortunate. There, there are a couple that I'm thinking of. Yeah, absolutely. If you were to, uh, if you were to meet a soldier, sailor, airman, woman who's about to rotate out in about two weeks, and you can give them one piece of advice before they do, what would it be? One piece of advice is tricky, but I think I'd, I'd encourage them to um, to just take it slow and not expect it's that part of it will be a you know coming back to the to the world it'll be um, a, a slow process and that they um, and and not to not to put too much on the civilian population around them you know I mean, we, we, sometimes I, I feel like myself. I put too much on people in this country, you know, like we have busy lives, people trying to put food on the table, they're working hard. They may not look like it in any given moment. If you look at an ant when it's when it's walking, you know, as it's um, one individual ant in the dirt walking along an ant trail, it looks pretty purposeless. You know, it's what is it doing? Have you ever just watched one and it just sort of rambles around checking things out? You can't see really any, why does that one need to be there, you know? But um, you start to see... Um, if you step back and look at a lot of them, you can start to see the formation of an idea and you can see a community and you can see um, an organism of these ants as they try to help each other to survive and make their way in the world. Um, and it's similar. You know, I was com complaining about people 
punching letters into their cell phones and driving in traffic. And it looks inane to me and banal and just pointless oftentimes. And I know I'm included in that. But um, also try to, you know, take it a little bit easy on the people around us and recognize that, you know, some of them have uh, some of them have cancer. They have loved ones that are in the hospital with um, diseases that won't be f- treated. Um, some of them have failed marriages, et cetera. So, you know, we have diff- we have hurdles in our lives. Everybody plays the blues if they live long enough, right? Um, <laughs> so to, to, to recognize that in those around them and to just take it slow. Um, and I, I encourage people who meet uh, veterans or service members who have come back and, and those who didn't serve overseas, you know, those in the military community when they're transitioning into civilian life, um, Oftentimes I hear people ask me like, what, what should I do for them? What should I, should I say? Thank you for certain. And I heard one person say this once and I repeat the the advice and that is, um, just if, if it seems like something you want to do, it seems natural, then just, just be their friend, you know? Um, and that, I think that's probably the biggest gift you could give anybody, you know? Brian Turner, thanks for being on Incoming. Hey man, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Mariah is 15 years into completing a lifelong career in the Army, having joined before 9-11 and completing six tours since then. She's far too humble to say it in these words, but she was part of history earlier this year as one of the very first female candidates to participate in the Army's Integrated Ranger School. And I failed. (laughs) 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 Yep, so I made it about, you know, two and a half days and then... uh... Then yep, it's time for me to come home. Didn't live up to the standard, but that's that's all right. So they're they're definitely not compromising their standard. Self-deprecation aside, I'm willing to bet you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who wouldn't feel better knowing the armed forces had Major Smith among their ranks. And as you'll hear from her story and interview, her voice is remarkably candid and vulnerable on subjects like finding an identity outside of the military, the struggle to maintain relationships while serving, and her dedication to seeing a fully integrated military but I'll let her speak for herself. So here's Mariah. My name is Major Mariah Smith, and my story is called I Write to You from Kandahar Again. I write to you from Kandahar again. Last time we saw this place together was February of 2011. Do you remember how crowded the boardwalk was? We were traveling to the Purple Heart Ceremony down in Taran Kaut. It was winter, and we were fighting the weather. We'd made it into Kandahar by C-130, then six flights in a row were scratched. Six trips down to the PAX terminal, hopes dashed six times. Six times three hours wasted in manifesting for helicopters that never showed. Eventually we sat in the Chili's. Who'd have thought there'd be a Chili's here? Or a boardwalk? Playing Scrabble, desperate to kill time. I started to cry. Scared and feeling hopeless that we were gonna miss seeing the survivors. We'd miss seeing their faces and shaking their hands, comforted in the tangible proof that they were intact, in body certainly, if not in spirit. You paused in your act of setting down a letter A, looking at me across the table, concern written across your face. Later, we walked the boardwalk and took pictures of the gray tabby cat who had made himself a little cave in the exact middle of a pallet of water bottles, sleeping curled with his paw over his nose for warmth. One night, and then a second, 
spent shivering miserably in the temporary billets. I'd committed the unpardonable sin of traveling in country without my poncho liner, despite knowing better. Why was the AC on in winter? I pictured the many past nights I'd spent sweating on a cot draped in mosquito net. I huddled, too cold to truly fall asleep even with my watch cap on. At some point in the night, I felt someone lean over me and cover me with an old wool army blanket. A brief glimpse in the dark of a tan t-shirt and braids pulled back into a bun. I woke long enough to hold my teeth together from chattering and murmured a thank you. In the morning, all other transient soldiers were gone, so I didn't even have a chance to thank her again. I folded the army blanket at the foot of the bare plastic mattress and left it for the next stranded traveler. Eventually, after 48 hours, a helicopter came. I have always loved Chinooks best of all, those big ugly workhorses with their deep reassuring chop. I wanted to be a pilot like you, but it wasn't in the cards. As soon as we were on the bird, they hustled us right back off, a soldier running back on with a clipboard, papers flapping. There was some mistake, maybe. They weren't sure. They ushered everyone off. I stood my ground, pointing to you grabbing the crew chief's harness to shout into his headset. Everything was deafened by the rotor wash. Your Kevlar-topped face peering back in, worried from the yawning ramp of the bird. That's my dad, I hollered into the crew chief's headset. We're trying to get to my husband's outpost for his Purple Heart ceremony. The crew chief stared at me for a minute, taking this in, his face almost completely hidden by his helmet. I didn't let go of his harness until I saw understanding in his eyes, and he waved you back on. We buckled in. We made it in time. Just barely. That was three winters ago, and that was my fifth tour. Kandahar is a ghost town now. The forever war is waning, for the time being. I can't believe I'm here again. Scratch that. Yes, I can. I feel like I never left. Like the three years between the tours five and six were the dream and this is the only reality. Like my short marriage was just a dream too. Like too many other veterans, it was lost to the never-ending pace of the back-to-back deployments and the uncertainty and absence of stability. And the fact that even when I was home, part of me was still always here. War was over for him, and he was ready for it to be over for me too. But many of us can't leave it behind, and when we get a chance to come back and live it again, we go. I'm here with a different unit, a different set of people. I find myself becoming confused at which tours I've gone through with which friends. I turn to Sergeant Carter, smiling to reminisce about how this drive reminds me of the time we drove from Ghazni to Camp Warehouse in Kabul and stopped for a lunch of goat and watermelon with the Afghan National Police at the camp named Four Corners. But that wasn't him. That was a different year, a different sector, the same war, a different me. The news rattles incessantly from one of the four flat screens mounted in our talk. How people return to their narrow metal rooms and continue to watch TV well into the night is beyond me. The voices are deafening. The words never stop. More responsibility and thus more clamor every day. I'm constantly surrounded by sound and smothered with interaction until after 16 to 18 hours of it each day, I retreat behind a locked door for six hours to write, or better yet, read, in as much silence as I can muster. I'm exhausted, but strangely happy. Even after I discovered Tim Robbins' donuts was gone from the boardwalk, 
There aren't as many Canadians here anymore as there were last time, and I miss them. Last time I saw Kandahar, it was a zoo of different uniforms, concrete barriers and strange vehicles parked in every available spot, jostling constantly for room in the showers, in the line at the chow hall, in the gym. Now it is empty and it makes sense. I can see the neat grid squares of spaces as it was originally laid out. Entire yards sit empty, the green sniper netting torn and dusty, peeling away to blow across the scrubby no-man's land. We now have a wealth of space. In the mornings, I walk outside of our small compound within a compound and stand underneath the bay trees with my coffee. It took me weeks to figure out what these trees were, the smell oddly familiar from childhood. I finally placed it one day when I fished out a familiar leaf from the stew at the mess hall. There won't be a normal for me. This isn't an interlude for my regular life. This is my life. Normal has passed me by. Who will I be when I am no longer at war? I'm 36. This all started when I was 22, a platoon leader. Two planes flew into two towers, and two more planes went down. And not too much longer, I was standing in a surprise formation, watching a general from the 101st give us our go-to-war speech. My friends are all married with kids now. I love them just the same as I always have, but our common ground is fading. I know you would have come with me this time if you could. I love you, and I wish you were here to see this. Everything is closing down. We will be one of the last units out, and then we will wait until we get told to go somewhere else. From what I see on the TVs, I doubt we will have to wait long. I'm glad. I feel useful. But someday there will be a pause in this long war, and I will have to search out a new way to find meaning in my days. But what will ever come close to this? I look at the faces around me, they grow younger with every tour. This is all new for them. They make me smile. I don't need to be anywhere else. For now, I am home. You know, I came from a family where service, you know, has been widespread since the Civil War even. We have a uh, great-great-great-grandfather who was killed at the Battle of Vicksburg. And then throughout, you know, our family's history, the, you know, we've been involved in World War II. My grandfather was a, a Navy veteran. I have cousins that are in all branches of the service. And my father served uh, 30 years in the Navy before he ended up coming to Afghanistan as an Army civilian on this tour. So I was in, I was in high school, and I started to think about, um, you know, how am I going to pay for college? And we had a young lady who had graduated and gone on to John Hopkins, and she came back in her ROTC uniform. And that was really the first I'd heard about the program. I knew about OCS, and I knew about uh, going to the service academies like West Point. But I learned about ROTC, where you can, you know, you drill every Thursday, you take one military science class every semester on Tuesdays, um, and then the rest of the time you're a regular college student. So I applied. I didn't tell my parents until I found out I had won kind of their top-level scholarship. Um, and then I told my parents, and I, I was really proud of that because Dad had challenged me to find money for school in the form of scholarship. So I found it, and I had selected Vanderbilt University, which is an insanely expensive school. Thankfully, I was able to attend um, with the Army scholarship, and then I found out as the years went by in college how much I truly loved it, and it was it felt like the one thing in my life that up till that point that I was truly good at. I hadn't really played sports in, in high school, wasn't the most athletic kid around, um, was a decent scholar, but nothing that great. And just and 
you know, being a military officer, it felt like my calling, and I felt I felt drawn to it. So I took a commission in 2000, right when I graduated. They uh, commissioned me as a second lieutenant on graduation day, and off I went. At the time, I was drawn to, I wanted to be a platoon leader. I had read, growing up, all these stories and biographies of young men who were platoon leaders in Vietnam and who were, you know, at the time at the same age as me, 19, 20, 21, um, and that was their formative experience, and really their passage into adulthood was was leading a platoon of, of, of 30 folks. And being a female, there are not as many branches, there weren't open to us at the time. More have since opened up, and the, and the Army's in the process of opening even more opportunities. But one of, in my opinion, the, the best integrated branch was the Military Police Corps. They had managed to fully integrate women into every aspect, every job. You had the opportunity to lead a platoon of military police. Military police have a very strong role in combat support on the battlefield, so you don't just do law enforcement during your garrison mission. When you transition to a wartime environment, uh, military police have a security presence. We handle enemy prisoners of war. And I saw the most opportunity there where I wouldn't be limited by my gender, and I had the most opportunity to kind of lead a small unit. That's really interesting that the military police, you felt, is, was, was one of the more integrated branches out there. The, the military police tends to draw, um, it has a slightly higher percentage of women than a lot of the other branches because I believe there, there's so much opportunity for there, there for us to be tr- treated completely equal, to have all roles open to us. Um, and it also draws women who are attracted to law enforcement, you know, the outdoors, physical activity, those types of things. So while the rest of the Army is about 14 to 15 percent women, the military police corps is about 18 percent, and the officer corps is as high as 21 percent, I believe. And I, I think our branch, military police, has led the way in showing that women are capable in combat situations and leadership situations where gender doesn't have to be a, a discriminator. And I'm really proud of our branch for that. You're, in your piece, you say you've been in this war since you were 22. And I wanted to ask you if you felt like since that time, you felt like you've been at war that whole time. I have. It's um, It has been, without a doubt, the most formative experience of my life. It's gone on since 2001 and 2002 for me now, and it shaped all of my 20s and and now almost all of my 30s. Units rotate for anywhere from nine months, one year, even 15 months rotation. I have a uh, 15-month rotation when I was a company commander in Afghanistan. But when you're home back in the States, just given the tempo that the military has been operating under for the past 12 years, you're not fully home. You're either training for your next rotation because you already know when you're going to go again, or you're doing recovery efforts, covering equipment, doing redeployment training once you're at home. And there hasn't been that time to really kind of rest for long periods and know you're going to be able to establish a stable, steady life. When you're in a military marriage, when you're in a military relationship, even with someone else who's serving currently, do you ever feel like you have... Do you ever feel like you can steal a moment with them when duty isn't in the room with you? <laughs> it's it's very hard. Um, you know, with, with dual military marriages or relationships, um, you know, every military family makes sacrifices. And, and we often, you know, in the military, we often tend to find that one partner 
um, takes a role where they can bring more stability to the family, whether they choose to be a stay-at-home parent, whether they choose the type of career where they can telecommute or they can do something where they can move with their spouse. Um, but every family makes sacrifices. When you're with another service member, kind of in this dual partnership, it's like you're married to them, to the military as well. You know, it's like this third party uh, in the relationship trying to manage the needs of the Army. And it's it's incredible demands on both of you. And to find time to set that aside and really just be present with your partner without the strains of knowing what's coming up is a long separation coming up is is one of you on on call where you're having to uh you know take calls all night because you're on duty it's it's very difficult to find that time to just be with each other i feel like for a lot of civilians there there's a ton of media coverage during the surge and the buildup, and you know the, the country kind of gets its own going to war speech also you know and maybe in yeah. five minute intervals on cnn if they're watching <laughs> that stuff but what I, what I don't think we get a lot of coverage of or a lot of sense of back home is what it's like to be in a drawdown. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between being in a buildup versus a drawdown, watching the base slowly recede into itself? Absolutely. I, so when I got orders for this most recent deployment, um, which I just returned from, it, it was number six for me, and it was number three in a row to Afghanistan. We went over there, our unit, I'm now in a uh, criminal investigation unit, and we went over in the fall of 2014. And I remember when I was telling my uh, extended family and friends that I was going back to Afghanistan, you know, there was there was kind of confusion on everyone's part. They're like, but we're we're pulling the troops out, like December 14, like it's it's the end date, like everybody's coming home, like how are you just going over there now? And to explain to them that there is still... A mission over there. We still have a commitment to providing stability and training resources and things to the Afghan government, and that it that it is a little different. It will be different than my tour in 2007 with the 82nd Airborne was. You know, that was a very kinetic, uh, very tactical tour. And in these past couple years, the military has found itself more in a uh, a mentorship role. There's still a, a great deal of risk that's assumed by our service members that are you know, moving around the battlefield each day, but the emphasis is on creating an enduring system that we can leave with the Afghans when we depart. Did you feel that risk, especially in such an environment of, you know, the era of green on blue attacks? Green on blue is one of the largest concerns, um, and our unit, um, Criminal Investigation Command, has a role in investigating those when they happen as part of a larger joint task force. My previous time there, the the one that the story um, that my dad and I were on the tour together when I'm writing to him, reminiscing about our time in 2011, I was assigned to a NATO unit at the time, NATO training mission. And the goal of NATO training mission was to specifically partner with the Afghan army and Afghan police and develop all their systems to develop um, their logistics system, their artillery systems, their police force. So we were working on a daily basis with the Afghan soldiers and recruits. And it was a time, 2010, 2011, when Green on Blue was at its highest rate, you know, and it was just occurring on a regular basis. It was a very difficult period because we still had that trust and working relationship with many of the Afghan security forces that we were partnered with. But to still maintain that kind of vigilance and readiness to be prepared for these insider attacks at any point, it was very difficult. One of the things that I, I love the most about your piece that I, I found 
to be the hardest to to explain personally and, and for some of my friends to explain is the anxiety that comes from the prospect of coming home while you're away on a deployment. Um, I know that you've been in since before September 11th. Do you remember uh, the time abouts when the idea of coming home first started feeling distressing to you and producing anxiety? I do. Uh, so I've, I've been in um, 15 years now. Probably like many other soldiers, I've, I've thought periodically about leaving the military at certain points in my life in the previous years. I, I have decided to stay. It has become such an integral part of my identity. There's almost a, a, f- a fear in leaving, and I think a lot of us face that because who will you be when you are no longer a service member, when you don't have this meaning in your life anymore, when you don't have that connection to others that are like you and have been through the same types of things that you have been. And that's that's actually a large reason why I have decided to stay. You know, I feel like this is what gives purpose to my life. This is my way to um, contribute, I guess, to society and to, to the people that I care about is leading this type of life and making this type of commitment. Because I, I really, I'm not... I'm not sure who I would be, you know, when I take off the uniform. Where would I draw my meaning from? One thing that I, I think is very powerful um, and why I was drawn to your organization is because I think veterans find a sense of purpose when we help other veterans or when we help our local communities. I worked in an organization called Soldier for Life before I came to this current job. And the whole point of Soldier for Life is uh, the chief of staff of the Army was looking at as we draw down this, you know, army that's been larger than, than it has been in years, as we draw down by over 100,000, how are we going to best serve the people that end up separating? How are we going to connect them to education and employment? And how are we going to help people, help our own veterans make that transition back into the community? So as I've thought about that, and I've been involved in these types of veteran service organizations for the past two years, the idea of leaving the military has become less frightening and has become more exciting because I, I do have 15 years in, so I have, what, you know, five or six or seven more years before it's time for me to retire. And that's what I think that I will do. You know, I want to find a way to kind of bridge that divide between our civilians and our military and integrate our veterans back into our community. It seems sometimes like uh, the military is kind of a family business, and a lot of us, many of us that are in the service now have parents, you know, like you that, um, like me, that, that um, served in an earlier conflict or, or served during the Vietnam era. Um, and, I, you know, they were deeply wounded by the way that they were received back home and back into society. And I also believe the country was deeply hurt by that. Um, and that's where I think that, that kind of we have this national memory to never do that again to our service members. I don't want to misquote or misappropriate this quote, but it might have been Tony Swafford who wrote Jarhead who said that there's no such thing as an anti-war story. And um, <laughs> he, he references a lot to, you know, like Tim O'Brien and, you know, the big military writers, but also movies like Apocalypse Now, which was, you know, in, intended at least in in PR as kind of like a an anti-war statement. But, you know, here when he was in Marine Corps boot, you know, it's, it's like 
almost jarhead porn he calls it you know <laughs> you're like rat you know you're <laughs> racking your clip along with it you know you're playing right at the valkyries how did you interpret all of the, that war lit how did you kind of synthesize that with your experiences as a soon-to-be officer you're right. But before I came in the military and when I was reading these types of things, you know, like like so many young people and teenagers, you know, I, I just I just saw the glory and the adventure in it. And I was like, you know, I want to do that. I, I want to go to these foreign places and I want to test myself in that ultimate environment. And I, I want to see how I react. And I, I want to confirm that I'm brave, you know, and that and that I'm that I'm strong. That was, you know, what 17-year-old Mariah was thinking as, as she read these these stories, you know. And then when you actually, when you live the reality of it, I think any veteran will tell you, you know, war is 90% boring um, and just wishing that you were somewhere else and like you were somewhere where you were you home, where you had air conditioning, where you're more comfortable, where you were back with your loved ones, you know, and then it's about 5% excitement and fun and 5% terror. These are non-scientific ratios, by the way. Um <laughs> So, uh, you know, so then to truly live it, the quote is right, because there's probably an anti-war aspect to everyone's story. You know, the, the, the drawdowns, the hardship, the heartbreak, the questioning of why you're there. But it is, it's just such a transformative experience. There are times when the camaraderie or the experiences you, you wouldn't have in any other type of environment or setting, and it, and it changes you. And that's what we miss when we leave it behind. Mm. Have, you, have you found that it's difficult to communicate or, or that people are surprised when it's communicated that, that you know, you can, be a, you can be a service member, you can be a veteran, you can be pro-military and pro-soldier and pro-America and ambivalent about conflict? And I ask that not at all as a political question. I've just never met, I've never worked with a veteran that I can think of right now at you know, 10, 11 a.m. my time that has been like, yeah, no, that was awesome. We should have done more of that. You know what I mean? And it has exactly. nothing It has nothing to do with who's in office or what party. I found most of, I mean, a lot of my friends are apolitical almost. They're just, it's like, here we go again. It seems to be the party, it, you know? It very much is. Yeah. It's like, it's like, well, you know, I, you know, you can vote and you can, you can express your political beliefs certain ways, but when it comes down to it, you know, you have to operate under whatever the current political environment is and you have to go and, and do your mission and and you're right you you want a military of professionals that are deeply ambivalent about conflict because we live um, you know the drawbacks and the suffering associated with it you know for years sometimes even for our whole lives so you want that reluctance and that true introspection on you know, what is the purpose of this? What am I trying to achieve? How can I best shape an outcome for the good that, that I can influence? You know, whether it's training this pol- platoon of, you know, Afghan policemen or, or making sure all my soldiers come home, that I, that I do everything every day to bring them home safely, you know, and help them move on with their lives. But yes, I believe pretty much every service member to a man and woman and veteran, they may not be when they when they come in, but once we're gained some experience and some insight, you know, we're deeply examining and, and introspective on why do we go to war and, and you know, what is what are the objectives that we're trying to achieve. I know you're currently enlisted still and but if you were to encounter somebody who was about to term out and say, you know, two weeks a month and you could give them one piece of advice about what to expect or prepare for, or get their head straight about being on the other side, what would it be? It would be to have a good plan about how they're going to pursue some type of 
career or employment that they're passionate about, how they're going to better themselves through education, and how they're going to care for themselves and family through either health care or, or finances. Because what I saw with a lot of folks that left, there was just a sense that they wanted to get away. They were done and they needed to kind of defuse, you know, break free of the military, and they left without a plan. We have some tremendous benefits available to us when we become veterans, like the post-9-11 GI Bill, supportive communities, you know, organizations that hire veterans, that hire military spouses. And the military has a program, a transition assistance program, for preparing yourselves in your final months of service to make that leap to the outside, you know, and to to become a productive citizen, you know, for through finding a quality job, you know, or, or getting enrolled in an education program. So that would be my biggest piece of advice is, is make a plan for what you want your life to be like, you know, next month, next year, five years from now, and don't just kind of walk into it, you know, walk away from everything in the military without, without a good plan. All right, Major Mariah Smith, thanks so much for being on Incoming. You bet. Thank you for having me. That's our show. Our guests today were Mariah Smith and Brian Turner. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Corley is our editor. Musicians for this episode include Chris Warren, Ariana Warren, Chris Apple, Kamau Kenyatta, Keith Munslow, and Jeffrey Malecki. Our outro music is by 1032, a.k.a. Tim Koch. At KPBS, John Decker is program director, Nate John is web editor, Emily Jankowski is our technical director, and Kurt Conan is our audio engineer. Special thanks on this episode to WFME in Orlando, Florida for helping us talk to Brian Turner. Funding is provided by the KPBS Explorer Program, the Veterans Arts Initiative of the California Arts Council, and of course, listeners like you. If you want to learn more and get involved, you can find us online at kpbs.org incoming or at sosayweallonline.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. PBS On Demand is supported by Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort on 4,000 private acres in the mountains near San Diego. Family-owned since 1940, Rancho La Puerta offers mindfulness and fitness vacations featuring farm-fresh cuisine. RanchoLaPuerta.com